Hello, I'm Alistair. And I'm Andrew. Welcome to Season 10, Episode 4 of Seen From Above, an informal podcast about the cool things happening in Earth observation. Check out seenfromabove.org for the podcast archive and show notes. Follow the show on Twitter via at EOSeenFrom and using the hashtag SeenFromAbove. In this episode, we talk coasts with Robbie Bishop-Taylor. Awesome. Let's do the news then on the 30th of June 2021. There's one big piece of mega news that will yep. leave the end. Hopefully we both agree that it's mega news, but we'll uh, we'll, we'll see. <laughs> so I'm going to I'm going to mention a few things in passing before I get there, which is firstly Transporter 2, SpaceX are due to launch a new payload full of a lot of SAR satellites, ISI, Capella Space among others. It was delayed from from yesterday, but I I'm assuming by the time this is broadcast, um, I'm assuming that it, that it's all been successfully deployed so um these transporter ones transporter one for example i remember seeing the payload an amazing array of satellites yeah. secondly future learn has a course called observing earth from space uh well worth checking this out i'm actually signed up oh okay i'm gonna try and do it it's a four-week course two-week studies i love these um MOOCs. this one's coming out of the university of edinburgh and there's two reasons I'm doing it. One, I love to see what's being taught. Maybe I'll learn something. It helps me get a sense of what information is being shared about Earth observation with, with new people. So that's really valuable. And also, all users will use EarthBlocks. So I'm pretty excited to, to have a look at that. Oh, yeah. Well, I might sign up myself. That sounds quite interesting. I think generally it's always good to sign up to these courses. And the final thing is I wanted to say before I go on to the mega news, Sentinel-6, um, we talked about this being launched November last year, so about six months ago, maybe slightly more. That's now operational, so getting down two products at the moment, I believe, on sea level height. With a lot of the commercial satellite work going on today, I, I think things like Sentinel-6 sometimes get forgotten in the commercial world, so I, I really value these very specific missions. I agree. There's so much focus <laughs> on uh, in terms of sort of being able to see an image, whether that's uh, optical or whether it's a, a SAR image or, or whatever. But I think moving away from some of the imaging satellites is really important as well, because all of the stuff that goes with that keeps the world going as, as it is, not just for monitoring for research purposes, but a lot of it actually is really important and gets used in, in applications, but it's just not talked about because it's not as visual. Absolutely. A good pun in there as well. Yes, thank <laughs> you. <I> <laughs> Um, so ISI is making some of its SAR data available for research, uh, science and application development through something called ESA's EarthNet Third Party Mission, so TPM. And basically this provides access to some of ISI's SAR data and it allows people to play around with it. You can get 5 by 5 kilometer 0.25 meter spot data, get 30 kilometer by 50 kilometer, three meter strip data, and 100 kilometer by 100 kilometer, 15 meter scan data. Wow. Um, and, and yeah, and play around with that. So that, that's absolutely awesome from ISI and from ESA to be making that available. So my next news item comes out of Ireland, and this is quite interesting. So it basically comes from the Department of the Environment, Climate and Communications, and is to do with something called the Observe 2 Aerial Survey Project, which has just had a latest funding round of 1.6 million euros uh, pushed its way 
but there's a total investment for the Observe program of 4.5 million euros. And this is uh, basically an Irish-led international consortium, which will begin aerial surveys of Ireland's maritime area. This is really interesting because you tend to think of aerial surveys as being over land, but this is a series of surveys happening over the sea in order to better understand Ireland's marine species and habitats and what they need in terms to survive and thrive. So I'd, I'd be really fascinated to see some of the findings that come out of this. Um, probably not so much the the data that comes out of it because there'll be a lot of sea, but it'd be, re- <laughs> it'd be really interesting to, to keep an eye on this and see what the findings are, because I'm guessing that they're doing this ultimately to help with their sort of natural marine environment management, but also being able to put uh, renewable energy resources out into those coastal areas and, and offshore areas. Yeah, at one point. I mean, doesn't is it a lot of money? <laughs> well, for an aerial survey, it feels like a lot of money. Right. But, but maybe not. I, I guess it depends on how many aircraft go out, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I, they're covering a large area. Cool. Okay. This week, we had the Impact Observatory release their 10-meter land cover map via the Esri platform. They're living at this global 10-meter land cover map amazing you know something that would have been uh, a staple of many consultants bag for delivering a land cover map in various projects whether it be you know more local or on a national scale is now being delivered on a global scale this is the kind of stuff that that makes an impact and the bbc had an article about it there's lots of discussion about this particular product because there's lots of claims about how fast they've processed it and people asking about how accurate it is and, and all this kind of stuff. But this is the kind of stuff that brings satellite data into a new sphere, into the into the public um, consciousness of not just seeing it as a pretty base map, seeing it as a way of categorizing or quantifying the Earth's surface. And I think in that sense... It's a phenomenal achievement. Yeah, I think it's really interesting, the discussions that have happened uh, online about it. It sort of shows in part, or, or opens up in part, the divisions within Earth observation at the moment, in that you have those people who are really hardcore into, I guess, what you could call the Earth observation science side of things, and those that are more into the information technology process type of thing. What this data set shows for me is that in terms of how it's been processed, the speed at which it's been processed, the data sets that it's used, and the the fact that it was using uh, Microsoft's planetary computer, all of that shows that yet again, there's another step change in terms of how Earth observation data are being processed to generate products rapidly that are useful. Irrespective of any of the criticism that has gone out about this, this is a useful data set. Yeah, I think then on the flip side is those that want to have every single part of the map um, validated and, and to be really accurate. And, you know, at a global level, based on what is it, one year's worth of, of data, I think, um, then that's, that's never going to happen. But this, this shows what is possible. Over time, more methods will be generated that will allow the validation of the data and the improved accuracy of the data. And, you know, it's going to involve things like pulling in different uh, training data sets from around the world. But those will get generated the more that we start using these techniques. And it will involve bringing in validation data sets. And those yeah. will get generated the more that people use Earth observation data. So it's an amazing undertaking. I think it's a really 
pertinent piece of work to be able to show exactly the types of things that we can do uh, with Earth observation data and how fast we can generate them. It's not perfect, but at the same time, show me a data set that is. Yeah, I mean, undoubtedly, it's been post-processed quite heavily. I've seen errors, but for the most part, in the areas that I'm familiar with that I've worked on in the last two or three years, I think results are good. And I, I think I think sometimes not the people like ourselves, but the people who are buying this as a product get misled into thinking they're getting a 100% perfect representation of the surface. But what it has done is it started talking more about global products from satellite data. We sort of find it feels like a breakthrough moment to me. Yeah, it's it's not perfect, but it is astonishing. For me, it sort of opens up deeper questions like how frequently are they going to update this? Because this is sort of almost being sold to my mind as a living land cover. So are we going to get to the point where this map is being updated on every pass of the sensor? How quickly can this be integrated? Or do land cover maps have to sort of stick in time so they can be compared on a yearly basis or a seasonal basis or, or whatever it may be at the beginning of this segment we said this is an amazing thing and and it is obviously a, an amazing thing to have a global 10 meter map but already we're thinking like oh if only they could develop it to do x y and z in addition i'm thinking like, oh, there's, there's so many extra things they could do maybe to to just enhance it they could sort of try and merge it with some of the uh, other land cover maps that are out there or, or use some of the uh, class classification trees that they have and and use those but at the same time i think we shouldn't forget that this is a pretty stonking product i think maybe we'll leave that that story there and that's it for the news Okay, on this episode, we're speaking to Dr. Robbie Bishop-Taylor from Geoscience Australia. Robbie, maybe it'd be best if you introduce yourself quickly. Yeah, hi, everyone. My name is Robbie. I'm a Coastal Earth Observation Scientist. I'm from the Digital Earth Australia Program, um, or DEA. And so um, DEA is an Australian government program at Geoscience Australia, which is our National Geoscience Institute. And our sort of role is to gather up and pre-process huge volumes of Earth observation data for Australia and make it available um, online. Um, for governments and industry to use it more easily and access it more easily. Cool. So have you always been a coastal person or were you an earth observation person and you found a niche in coastal stuff? Yeah, I've kind of jumped around a bit. So I, um, at uni, I did a bit of archaeology. That was sort of where I first started using satellite data. Um, and so that was sort of involving going to Bulgaria and sort of finding Roman pottery in fields, um, which is pretty amazing. And so there I kind of, um, from there I switched to a PhD project, which was looking at inland water, so sort of tracking water bodies through time, um, seeing how they've changed and um, how that affects local ecosystems. And so then from there, I've jumped from inland water to the coast more recently at Geoscience Australia. And for those of us who aren't Australian, could you just give a, an idea of where Geoscience Australia sits? Yeah, so we're um, a federal government organisation. We kind of are the kind of a counterpart to CSIRO, but we focus on geoscience data and sort of basically trying to sort of store and analyse um, Australia's environmental data sets. So we do lots of mapping, lots of, sort of geology work, um, and more recently, analysing satellite data, because that's sort of a really amazing way of better understanding the Australian environment and how things have changed. And Yeah, I think a, a lot of people as well sort of underestimate just how big Australia is in terms of, and so the amount of data that you're actually having to process must be absolutely huge. Yeah, it is. So I think um, in the um, Digital Earth Australia archives of satellite data, I think we currently have I think roughly 10 petabytes of data that we kind of curate and store. So a lot of the the challenges of 
dealing with that is basically trying to find ways of analyzing that in sensible ways, storing the data, accessing it, yeah. um, which can be a considerable challenge. There's sort of the science side of things, doing cool applications with the data and getting insights, but there's also just the sort of trying to wrangle this huge volume of data that we have. So what sort of size team do you have? That's a huge amount of data that you've just mentioned. I think we have um, a little more than 50 people. Um, so okay. I'm, I'm specifically within um, one of our two science teams. So yeah. my focus is sort of the application side of things, like getting insights into environmental processes, but we also have a cloud team, a core development team, a sort of a team that manages the, the actual satellite data themselves and processes that into analysis ready data. Um, so there's a whole lot of different sub teams um, yeah. all sort of working together to the same goal to making satellite data easier to use. Maybe you could take us through uh, a little bit the uh, coastlines stuff that you've been doing. So I came across this when you started posting things on Twitter and it, some of the outputs look amazing. Yeah, yeah. So this is um, the a new product that we've called the Digital Earth Australia Coastlines or DEA Coastlines. And so basically this is a free data set um, based on remote sensing that maps the annual position of the shoreline across Australia for each year from 1988 to the present. And from that, we then um, identify areas that are eroding or accreting um, and sort of map out these hotspots of coastal change. So the way we've done that is we've taken um, about 32 years of Landsat 5, 7 and 8 data um, from the DEA data cube. And so that data is really useful in itself. But this is the problem you get with coastal analysis, particularly in Australia, is that in some of our coastlines, we have huge tides. So basically, the coastline can jump up and down by about 10 metres between low and high tide. Um, I think it's the similar um, environments in Western UK. Yeah. And so this makes it really tricky to work out how the shorelines actually change. So you can imagine going to the beach at low tide and then at high tide. Um, it's pretty difficult to work out whether the beach has changed because it's eroding or just because the tide's changed. The really important part of our work is that we combine satellite data with tidal modelling to get a better idea of how the coastline's actually changing, not just the effect of tide. What we do is basically we take this full um, time series of Landsat data, so 30 years of Landsat. We then use a tidal model to calculate the exact moment, the exact height of the tide at each satellite image. Okay. And then we tag an image with that data. And so that then lets us start to slice and dice our satellite imagery by tide height, as well as just time and location. I, I'm imagining there's some quite hardcore Python behind that. Yeah, so we use Python for all of our um, analysis. So we use a, a package called the Open Data Cube, which is um, an open source package that is designed for analyzing and managing um, large archives of satellite data. And so it has a Python API that we use and that loads data into X-Array, which is a really powerful format for analyzing multi-temporal satellite data. Was that like a conscious choice to go to Open Data Cube? Open Data Cube actually started at Geoscience Australia back in 2011. So basically there was some in-house software that was being used to analyze um, satellite data. And as it sort of developed, it was realized that this is really, really useful stuff and it has benefits far outside just our institution. So that's sort of become an open source initiative from that point on. Um, and so now it's this huge open source project that has, I think, there's expected to be about 22 operational national or regional data cubes around the world by 2022. Um, and it's just sort of grown far beyond um, Geoscience Australia. But yes, yeah, so that's sort of where that started. We've continued to sort of support that and develop that as time's gone on. I hadn't quite realised that it had come out of Australia. Um, was X-Ray the sort of default object? I think it's pretty critical to a lot of the, the work we do. Yeah. So yeah. Um, it just, because we're, we're always dealing with space and time, um, it just is such an amazing framework to, yeah. to get back your data with nice labels, being able to slice and dice by time, location, um, do really, so we, we are always using some of the, sort of the, the temporal reduction functionality. So being able to really quickly calculate a median on the fly, um, get some sort of mean composites, that kind of thing. I remember 
when I first came to work for Geoscience Australia, um, someone sat me down and gave me some code examples using X-Ray. And I, I realized that some of the, the work I'd done in my PhD that had taken months to do um, was like one or two lines of code in X-Ray, which is <laughs> confronting, but also amazing. Like it's, it just takes so much of the barrier away from doing this stuff. Do you get a sense of what your users are, are doing? Yeah, so I think it's it's pretty divided. A lot of our work is done um, on the DEA sandbox, which is a Jupyter Hub environment. Yep. So you can you can basically log on in a browser and then access a data cube that way really quickly without any setup. And we have a whole lot of um, example code examples and sort of helpful guides to getting started with that. So that's really good for the power users, the people who are comfortable with Python. But that's only a very small subset of people. So for the people who actually use this stuff. Um, to get a better idea of their local coastlines and their beaches. Yep. Um, we put a lot of focus on working on the web services as well. Yeah. So we have a, a really nice interactive map um, system that users can basically go on, zoom around the coastline, look at their little beach, zoom out to the whole of Australia, get us of a, a zoomed in and zoomed out view of, of how their coastlines are changing, which is it really gets rid of that barrier of having to learn Python to start using this stuff. Can I log on to the sandbox and create an NDVI for one month across the whole of Australia? No, so the sandbox is, is really there as like a, a demonstration of capabilities. The way we use it is that we use Jupyter Notebooks for prototyping our work. So yep. getting um, testing out our workflows on a small area, um, seeing what works, seeing what doesn't, getting it working there. And then from that point, we can then scale up. The sandbox itself doesn't currently support scaling up to big scale. Um, so we usually sort of recommend people um, test their workflows there and then um, look into sort of other AWS solutions and sort of some other approaches for using things like Dask for scaling up um, to big scale. So yeah, so it's a bit of a mix. So at the moment, it, it's really there to sort of show people how this stuff works. Right, um, yeah. Scaling up still takes some technical work. Are you open to sort of commercial partnering? Can, can a can a company use the Open Data Cube to develop a product? Yeah, well, so so this is just um, the the DEA implementation of Open Data Cube, which is sort of what we specifically manage. But yeah. the Open Data Cube itself is completely open source and can be implemented by anyone, whether they're commercial or from any other sort of groups. So, it, so they'd have to sort of have their own hardware and their own Open Data Cube instance. Yes. Yeah. The nice thing about the Open Data Cube is it supports um, accessing data that is already. Um, in other open access repositories. So one um, feature that's been added recently, recently is the ability to index data um, using the stack um, metadata yeah. um, interface. So basically you can you can take a stack catalog, um, the data cube will read that in, it'll tell it where all the data sets are. And from that point on, you can load data directly from the cloud without having to download it. Amazing. Which can be really powerful, yeah. I sort of really ask those questions for expectation management where people are sort of sold on the idea and they come to the reality the way this is going is that you won't have to bring your own data to it. You can yeah. you can access data that other people have done the hard work of processing, which is, it just accelerates the time taken to start doing analyses if you don't have to worry about all of yeah. those data processing steps yeah. and yeah. Um, loading the data, downloading the data. Um, and for a lot of big scale applications, like if you're looking at doing things at national or continental scale or globally, you just can't use the, sort of the, the traditional workflows of downloading data to your desktop and analyzing them there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was just looking at some of the outputs in the, the web app and I was wondering how how did you go about validating your, your results? Yeah, so that's been a really important part of this. So it's quite easy to, to apply a remote sensing algorithm and get something out of it, but <laughs> yeah. we really, because we have a lot of um, either government or industry stakeholders who need to use this stuff for their work, we have really wanted to make sure that we know exactly where it works and where it doesn't work. So part of this process has involved gathering up um, coastal monitoring data sets from different um, stakeholders all across Australia's coastline. And so we've we've gathered up about, I think, 58,000 different validation points. So that can be everything from 
when someone's gone out with a, um, a measuring tape and measured the beach um, or people who've flown over with LIDAR or aerial photogrammetry, that kind of thing. And so we basically used that and compared that against our results and then worked out um, different accuracy um, stats for different coastal environments, so sandy beaches or muddy coastlines, that kind of thing. And so that's, that's given us quite a good idea of the accuracy of this thing. So we're getting, um, we're able to pick up change um, precisely to around 11 meters on sandy coastlines, which is wow. pretty encouraging. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's just brilliant. I, I was really hoping you would say somebody had to go out and um, sort of go and go to all the beaches in Australia and just double check yeah. it. <laughs> well, that's, I think that's interesting. <laughs> it's an interesting point because I think as remote sensing products get bigger, the ability to validate them in a meaningful way is much harder. Like you really can't, even if we went out for a couple of months and survey one beach really intensely, that would really only give you a very limited idea of how accurate the product is. So yeah, I've, I've been kind of for this, the validation approach has really been trying to scavenge useful data from all sorts of different places and use that as the validation data, because that's really the only way you can validate things at a scale that's meaningful to a continental scale product. Yeah, exactly. I guess leading on from that, if you've got lots of different uh, validation data sets that you're pulling together, each of those, I guess, will have been validated in some sense and will have a statistic linked to those. Is statistics a big chunk of the type of work that you guys are doing? Because I'm, I'm guessing from what you've said so far, there's a lot of IT skills required. There's a lot of Python skills required. There's a lot of EO skills required. Is, is there also a need for like a dedicated statistician to come in and help with some of these things? Yeah, so we, we do work with, um, with collaborators from some of the local universities who have um, really amazing expertise in, in statistics and sort of the, the really mathematical side of things. So we've kind of... Our team has a whole range of people who are either people who um, started off doing Earth observation work or people who, um, there's, there's quite a few people who started in astrophysics and that kind of thing. People who have a really good scientific um, background, but not necessarily in Earth observation. So yeah, so we, we kind of leverage on a whole range of people who have these different skill sets. I think it's pretty valuable. I also noted that the web app, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think it's um, created in cesium. Uh, which is something that Andrew and I have mentioned a couple of times before with other apps we've seen. Do you know why the choice was made to go with Cesium? The interface we use is a um, piece of software called Terrier.js, um, which has been developed by um, some collaborators at CSIRO. Oh, okay. So I don't, I don't know the specifics of the, the implementation of the, the Cesium part of that, but I, it is a, a pretty amazing library um, for its ability to visualize huge geographic data sets. So yeah. we have some data in there, which is, um, yeah, terabytes or almost petabytes in size and it just it turns through them easily and visualizes them in 3d and lets you zoom in and get different views of the same data one of the things that has been really powerful for us is leveraging um cogs data so um cloud optimized geotiff data because it it does mean that you can easily access a huge raster um, in a browser really quickly um, yeah. and only loading in the data that you want you're seeing at that moment and then zooming in and getting more detailed data as you as you go. I really like the fact that it, it's a very clean interface when you first load it up and that it doesn't overwhelm you with buttons and choices and everything else. But if you then sort of expand some of the various different things down the side or the map settings or whatever, you can get the information that you really need. That's been pretty important for this data in particular because it is a very detailed data set, but people come at it wanting very different things. So some people want to look at the whole country. Some people want to look at their beach. So we've used the Terry J system to basically show people the level of data that they are interested in at the time they're looking at it. And then if they really want, they can go all the way in, they can expand all the different options. They can click on the coastline to get detailed stats and graphs of how things have changed, but they're not overwhelmed with that at the start. It's sort of, if they want that, it's there, but not everyone has to see that right up. 
I'm not sure how many months of work went into this, but I'm guessing a, a fair few. <laughs> um, but in terms of updating it, so obviously we get more data coming down all the time. Is that an automated process or do you have a dedicated team now that's going to update it sort of annually or every six months or? I think the development of this product has been about two and a half years or maybe three years of work, um, yeah. building on some sort of existing um, workflows that we had. But sure. yeah, it's been a pretty um, long process. But yeah, so the, the plan is that this will be a sort of a living data set that will be updated every year. Um, we're currently working on this, the original version of this data was run in a, a high performance computing environment on Australia's national supercomputer. We are currently moving the workflows up to an AWS solution, um, basically so it can be automated nicely. So every year at roughly um, the 1st of July, it'll sort of tick over and start running the new coastline and it'll be a new annual coastline. Amazing. So in my very uh, UK focused brain, my idea of waters around Australia is that they're all crystal clear and it's you know, <laughs> perfect for, for doing this type of um, analysis. I was just wondering how transferable the sort of method might be to somewhere like Europe. Yeah. So one thing we've we discovered very early in the process is that there is a huge range of diversity across Australian water. <laughs> Some areas are, are beautiful. So up, up north, um, particularly in the dry season, you get these beautiful clear water that has incredibly good contrast with the land. So it's really easy to pull out an accurate shoreline because it's just so obvious where the water is. Um, down in Tasmania, um, down south, you get pretty much cloudy conditions almost all year round. So you're already dealing with a tiny bit of data. Um, and let alone when you start dealing with things like turbidity. So when you have um, some big tropical rivers that pour out huge volumes of sediment um, after rainy seasons, things get really tricky. So the, the, so the main approach we've used for dealing with all of those different sources of noise is generating composites. So rather than analyzing each image, each satellite image individually, we combine them all into a median composite that is essentially a robust um, image of the coastline for that year. So because of that, I think you know, all of the methods are quite transferable because that, that approach handles really noisy data quite well. Um, so if you're, if you're in an environment that has um, very few cloud-free observations or it has very noisy conditions because of um, water quality or that kind of thing, um, we can still extract really high-quality shorelines from that data. The methods that we've used are all open source and freely available. So basically anyone can take that code and run it for their area. Yeah, cool. I'm aware of some similar sorts of work at coastline and coastline change that's been happening in um, parts of the UK but also parts of Africa as well and I think these types of methods would be really well suited if if all the data was able to be processed in the, in the correct way and, and gathered in the correct way I guess in the first place so yeah it's really cool that you've made everything open. Can you give us um, an overview of what what the ecosystem of of Earth observation is like in Australia. We're very focused in Europe. Look to North America and go, oh, we know, wish we were doing that. If you can, can you give us like a high level overview of Earth observation in Australia? Yeah, that's a good question. So I think um, it has been quite dominated by government um, up until recently. Right. So I think that's that is the sort of the main reason that my program, Digital Earth Australia, exists is just to try to encourage uptake. Um, of this data. And, and so, yeah, so our, our sort of big focus has been trying to make it much more easier for industry to, to start using. A lot of our code is already starting to be used for um, industry applications. And I think the sector is growing really rapidly. We do have a, um, a new space agency as of, I think, last year. Part of its role is to map out the direction for Australia, like whether we are going to be launching rockets or whether we're going to be sort of um, get, helping contribute validation and calibration for other space programs. I think that's all being being worked on at the moment but yeah so early early days that we do we are working down that path 
because we were one of the, the sort of the earlier groups adopting things like open data cube and, and sort of ways of analyzing big data sets i think we have lots of really good connections with some of the progress that's being made in Europe and America. It is really exciting to be able to produce code and products which are then feeding back to other other countries' implementations. And yeah, it's sort of, it feels like it's a very alive and moving industry. For sure. I mean, I've, I've looked at the DEA notebooks and reused code from there or frankly stolen it. Yeah, you can because it's all open source. Yeah. <laughs> we always say reuse, don't we? But basically just grabbed it and... Yeah. Uh, and used it so i mean it's that is astonishing there's so much in there yes that's that's been a really important part like i think the tricky thing with um, initiatives like open data cube is that they might be sort of developed for ones of specific implementations they maybe they're developed for um, digital earth australia and then you have a certain group of people who know how to use all the tools but then no one else can really start it because there's no starting point so with the da notebooks project we've really tried to to basically create a library where people can steal stuff and add it to their own um, analyses and copy and paste as much as they want i think one of the pages in there is is basically a code recipe book that is all of these different tasks you can do that you can you can just look up what you want to do see the the right notebook go in there copy the paste, copy and paste the code into your your own application and save all of the time and effort you would otherwise spend googling the correct way to do things and yeah so i think that that kind of having nice code examples and nice also illustrations of case studies of how it can actually be used so i think seeing examples of where people have used it to to get insights into a certain environmental process is really powerful too so we have another page now which is um, all these case studies so monitoring coastal erosion as one monitoring border quality tracking um, reservoirs through time that kind of thing um, I think that really makes it go from something that's quite abstract to something that's quite um, practical and people can see how they could use satellite data for their own applications. Yeah, it's so compelling, isn't it? The, note, the notebook to communicate what you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we find people even who aren't familiar with Python can quite happily sit through a notebook and they might not get all of the sort of intricate details, but they'll come out of it kind of getting a pretty good idea of, oh, that's pretty cool. I can see how that works and yeah. I can see how this could apply to my own situation or my own case study. In terms of um, like cool Python bingo, I, I think we, we've hit quite a few things. So you've mentioned Stack, you've mentioned Dask. Yeah. I, I know it's not Python, but we've talked about Cogs and obviously there's the Open Data Cube. Are there any sort of libraries or softwares that you really want to be able to play around with that you've yet to sort of get your hands on? So one thing I've been really watching with interest is, I think it's the Leaf Map um, Python um, oh, yeah. package, oh, yeah. which I've just seen on Twitter <laughs> recently. There was, a, um, I think it was originally um, Google Earth Engine that but i think um the developer of that's just recently started working on a sort of a, a yeah, platform agnostic version that works on any um jupyter or python environment so that's for us um i guess the one draw the one downside of how we've used jupyter notebooks is it's mostly been just showing off the, the raw code with some annotations and um and plots but i think being able to interactively show our results so having people who can click point and click on a sort of a, an interactive um user interface in a notebook would be really powerful and it, yeah that that piece of software seems like it has a lot of really useful things that could make sort of go the next step from a sort of a code notebook to something that's actually a tool that you can run in a Jupyter notebook. So the first way that I came across you I think originally was through your Twitter account you've always been posting some amazing things about the open source stuff that you're doing but also some really cool Im images and sort of uh, screenshots of the data that you've been using and the outputs and things. If people want to follow you so what is your Twitter handle? Yeah so it's satellitesci, S-C-I at the end. My Twitter is a is a yeah a mix between open source software and just lots of pretty pictures and animations so there's um yeah, there's a bit of a mix between stuff that is is relevant to to people who are doing python coding for earth observation and people that just like seeing 
um, amazing animations of how our environments are changing, whether it's on the coast or inland. That's one thing that's been really amazing with having access to something like the Open Data Cube is it just makes it so easy to load data for a certain area for all of time. And then you can animate it, you can visualize it in all sorts of fun ways. In the past, you would have had to download individual images and sort of try to stitch them together and animate them one by one, but this just makes it super easy. That kind of visualization is really powerful because people respond so much more quickly and they get so many more insights into seeing it on a map or seeing an animation or seeing things change with their own eyes to reading about it or sort of seeing a table of stats. So I think visualization is a really important um, part of Earth observation. Is, is there any sort of visualization tool that you particularly like using? Uh, so to be honest, most of our visualization is done with um, matplotlib, um, oh, okay. various different functions. So all of our animation code is um, is using animation functions from matplotlib and I guess X-Array to pre-process the data. So if you load in a stack of data for a certain area, you can make an animation really easily, but it will be a pretty terrible one. So we do a lot of sort of extra processing steps, like we run rolling medians to smooth out the data. We can apply lots of different image processing tools um, to each frame of the animation to sort of enhance contrast and make things a bit easier to, to see the processes you're looking at. Matplotlib does get criticism for being tricky to use, but it is very powerful and you can you can do a lot with it. What makes me laugh about animations and visualizations on Twitter is that because we desperately need some change to be seen on an animation, that we yep. kind of mislead the world in our observation that everything's changing all the time. Well, you <laughs> wouldn't just tweet... Uh, picture of oh it's the it's desert, it's the, it's the desert. Yeah. <laughs> that rock is still yeah, here's, there. A, here's a rock that hasn't moved or a mouth in there yeah. yeah yeah it is true that is an interesting thing with the, the coastlines project that it, one of the, the outcomes of that is that australia's coastlines actually are remarkably stable and um, yeah. they are more stable than previous research has indicated so there are areas a lot of areas that are changing rapidly but um, overall um, things are pretty stable so it is, it is yeah it's quite interesting once you once you do look at these things at a big scale um, outside of the, the local area, the, the different insights you get. Ravi, thank you so much for your time. It's been brilliant talking to you. Uh, it's been really interesting finding out all sort of data stuff and the, the software stuff that you're doing. And and also, I love the fact that it's applied and that people are using the data that you've, you've generated, the results that you've generated. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thank you. It's been fun. Thanks, Ravi. We encourage you to drop us a line through Twitter using at EOSeenFrom, where you can find a vibrant community based around the podcast. Thanks for listening, and that's it for now. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, Alistair. I, I might edit out the word snore. <laughs> <laughs>